here we go, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports. Football Friday, Saturday edition coming to you on a Saturday morning, September 15th, 2018. Kicking off the show, The Village by New Order, off the Power, Corruption, and Lies album. As always, I'm your host, Jamal Hayden. We've got a big show to get to. As I said, Football Friday, Saturday edition. First week, NFL in the books. Thursday night game already, week two in the books. College football, week, I guess, two weeks in the books. And we've got plenty of baseball still to discuss. And you know what? We will kick it off with Major League Baseball. And the announcement by David Wright the other day that he is retiring. He's not retiring. They're not going to use the word retire. Uh, he's not going to be able to play anymore, but he's not retiring, but he's not playing. I mean, if this is not the most Mets thing ever and such a typical half-measure, ham-handed way to handle something that should, again, be very simple. Look, the guy can't play anymore. He hasn't played in three years, okay? They're going to do him a solid, all right, and let him play in a meaningless game on September 29th. He's going to start. I'm sure they'll put his little buddy, Jose Reyes, next to him at shortstop to start the game. Right? So, so, so they can say that they played together one last time. And, and I guess it's all very nice and it's all well and good. Um, forgive me for being a grump and a curmudgeon and cynical. But um, exactly what has David Wright, have David Wright and Jose Reyes done for this franchise other than 12 years ago get to the NLCS and lose to a bad Cardinals team? I mean, seriously, the Mets treat these guys as if this was the, the mid to late 90s, early aughts Yankees team that won four World Series in a row. That won 100 games every year. And look, I understand it's not always all about winning. I understand David Wright's a nice guy. And boy, was he smart being nice to New York media. Because their overreaction to his career and his whatever this announcement was, I, I, you can call... Again, the word retirement was never used. But he's never going to play again after this year. But somehow the word retirement never came up. But the overreaction by the New York media is laughable. Laughable. Now, again, I understand it's a meaningless game against the Marlins. It has no playoff implications for any other team. And that's fine, I guess. But one gets the impression that if the Mets were playing a team that was somehow still in the thick of a playoff race, they would do this nonsense anyway. So he's being activated off the DL in a couple of weeks. He's going to be available for pinch hitting duties. He's going to start on the 29th. And then hopefully we'll never see or hear from this guy again. Because I am so sick of hearing about David Wright and his comeback attempts. As if, you know, this is, uh, you know, as if he's saving lives. I mean, again, the, 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 the coverage of him is so over the top. Look, 
And, and that's what gets me aggravated. I have nothing against David Wright. He seems like an affable fellow. For the most part, he, he said and did all the right things while he was here. All right? Certainly likable, nice enough guy. But, I mean, let's not, let's not overdo who he was. David Wright had four excellent years. Excellent. You could argue, you could make the argument that between five, this baseball seasons of 05, 6, 7, and 8, David Wright was the best third baseman in the National League. You could make that argument. He had four outstanding Hall of Fame level years. Right? He got called up in 04, played about half the year. Dope Art Howe bat- insisted on batting him seven so he could learn his place, even though that team was so bad that David Wright was already the best hitter on that team. But okay. Uh, and he was outstanding for those four years. Now, did he have a good playoff series against the Cardinals? No, he was awful. Four for 25, two RBIs. Remember, he hit third on that team. All right? Reyes hit first, Leducas second, right third. He was a major piece of that team. He had a great regular season in 06. Had a horrible NLCS. I mean, the Mets swept the Dodgers. So, you know, and I think he played okay. But, I mean, it was, that was one of his best of five. Mets won the first three games at Eos. He had a terrible series against the Cardinals. Not, by the way, he wasn't alone. A lot of the Mets did. They should have never lost that series. They were an 83-win Cardinals team. Okay? But... Let's just, to put things in perspective, these are facts. This is not my opinion, okay? Ken Davidov and Mike Vaccaro of the Post with their, you know, flowery prose about what a great human being and player David Wright was. He was part of, I'm sorry to say, those teams in 07 and 08 that collapsed down the stretch, right? Blew seven game leads with about 17 games to go, almost impossible to do. And I'm sorry, and I know a lot of Mets fans are not going to want to hear this because a lot of revisionist history going on around right now about, you know, what a great player David Wright was. Uh, I will, let me remind you of an at-bat against the Cubs on a rainy Thursday night against Bobby Howery, who by that point in his career was pretty much winding down his career, former closer for the White Sox, was now on the Cubs, was a marginal setup man at best, Bases loaded, nobody out. 3-0 count, David Wright. Mets, all they, all they needed was to get a run home here. And they win the game, and they stop the bleeding, and they give themselves a chance to, to ward off the Phillies, who were hard charging. David Wright went from 3-0 to grounding into a double play and killing that game. The Mets lost that game in extra innings, and that was it. And they never recovered. And they ended up blowing a big lead again. I went to the last home game in 08 when they had a chance. Last home game at Shea. And, of course, they they lost, as we all know. Uh, And then ever since then, guys, I'm sorry. His career was awful. He had a horrible year in 09. Now, listen, part of that was the idiotic will ponds with a stupid new stadium where it was about 490 feet to right center field, which is Wright's happy zone. Okay? so And they didn't do him. I mean, they did him no favors. Right? They put up the huge wall in left field and made it deep. And then to hit a home run to right center field was damn near impossible. So they didn't do him any favors there, number one. I think they messed with his head. And he also got beaned that year by Matt Cain. Again, I'm not blaming him. These are just the facts. He was never the same player again. 
You know, he had some nice window dressing statistical years in 13 and 10. But then the injury started setting in, and he was never the same. So, I mean, it's really, it's been 10 years, 10 years since David Wright was an all, played at an all-star caliber level, was, in a, was a, an above-average Major League Baseball player. It has been 10 years. And yet, to hear Mets fans or read Mets fans discuss him on Twitter or to read, again, the papers... Well, there's only one now tabloid because the Daily News decided they don't want to be in the newspaper business anymore. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you read the post again. Ken Davidoff with this, you know, they're, they're doing the right thing by him and he deserves it more than any person in the history of the world. And Mike Vaccaro, I've never met a nicer guy in my whole life. That's fine. You can say that and also point out the fact that David Wright, again, Hasn't had been a relevant player for 10 years. Both things can be true, people. It's not an indictment on David Wright, the human being, that he's been irrelevant as a baseball player for 10 years. How about a little perspective? And I'm sorry. Again, call me jaded, hardened, cynical. But when a guy has basically been checked out for 10 years, uh, yeah, I'm a little, what have you done for me lately? Especially when what he did in his great years wasn't all that great. Again, the statistics were great, yes. I'm talking about overall team success. And I understand it's baseball, and it's a team sport, and it takes more than just one guy. I understand all of those things. But again, let's stop pretending like, David Wright is even remotely close to being a Hall of Famer. He's not. Again, four outstanding years. I mean, if Don Mattingly's not in the Hall of Fame, David Wright sure as hell isn't even sniffing the Hall of Fame. And by the way, here's the ironic thing. I think David Wright would be the first person to tell you that. He seems to have a pretty good grasp and handle on reality. It's all these other people that want to do his bidding for him for whatever reason that keep insisting he's something more than what he was as a player. So, listen, I think at least finally now, and look, I give him credit for grinding and trying to come back. I understand. But again, let's not pretend like he's delivering humanitarian aid to some war-torn country, okay? I mean, he's made a ton of money. The Mets idiotically gave him a huge contract when they were in their austerity phase, okay? Their super austerity phase, right? They let Reyes walk. Wright was the guy they decided to keep. They completely overpaid him. It was a dumb contract. He's made a ton of money there. You know, I mean, again, he made apparently made, he took a small, uh, he made about 20 million bucks just on vitamin water alone when he invested in that company a million years ago. Not a million, but a long time ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was. Uh, He's just fine financially. So um, better than just fine. I mean, he's an extremely wealthy man at 35 years old. Never has to work another day in his life. Good for him. That's fine. He, he, he earned it to a certain extent. Okay. That's fine. But at least now, now there's no more. There are no, so I wonder, I don't really know what the financial implications are, of this are. I assume the insurance will cover the rest of this. There'll be some sort of settlement with the insurance company. 
But it's one less excuse, again, for the Wilpons to not spend any money in the offseason. Okay, and we can stop this charade and this idiotic pipe dream that somehow we have to leave the light on for David Wright to come back at some position on the major league team. So maybe that means can you deal Todd Frazier in the offseason to a team that might want him because he's only got one year left on his contract? And God forbid, I don't know, go after Manny Machado or maybe you move Jeff McNeil to third, which I think he's more comfortable playing. Because he's certainly shown he can hit. I, I know it's not a huge sample size, but based on his minor league career, what he did this year in the minors, and what he's done at the major league level, the kid can hit, and he can handle the bat. So, and then you go get somebody else to play second. At least it frees them up. And again, we finally put an end to the David Wright saga. Will he or won't he? come back again I have no ill will towards David Wright I don't okay he was a nice player he's a good guy let's just leave it at that speaking of the Metsies fresh off their 8 nothing shellacking of the Red Sox last night who were basically in cruise control Red Sox have all but essentially, essentially wrapped up the division they've got 101 wins they didn't even start the guy who was supposed to start last night. He, the, the starting pitcher of Velasquez, I think, fell ill before the game. Um, they went, you know, basically with the bullpen game. They put in some rookie that, you know, just got called up in September to start the game. Look, give the Mets credit. They did a little number on, on the Red Sox in their bullpen. Right, Jay Bruce, you know, classic Jay Bruce. I mean, I think I texted a buddy of mine two months ago, three months ago. Something to the effect of my buddy Mike, who's a big Mets fan, something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't want to hear it from Jay Bruce in the second half when he puts up, when he gets raging hot in meaningless games. Well, <laughs> that's what you're getting from Jay Bruce. Jay Bruce is raging hot since he came off the DL. Hit a RBI double, three-run homer last night. Hit a grand slam the other night in a blowout of the... What other hapless team the Mets beat? They had Marlins the other night. Making a big push. Listen, if the Mets are really going to play him at first base next year, I mean, I can only hope that all this idiotic talk about Mickey Calloway thinks Jay Bruce really can be the first baseman next year, I really hope that that's just to try to enhance or, or, or create. I shouldn't say enhance because it probably has none, no trade value now, but at least to create some trade value. Although, you know, who's going to want to take on two years and $26 million, which is what Jay Bruce is owed over the next two years? Probably nobody, at least now. Certainly coming off this disastrous year, this, this late season push notwithstanding. But, I mean, again, after the year Peter Alonso had in, in between AA and AAA with 36 home runs and 119 RBIs in about 100 and. 40 games, maybe not even, 130-something games. And, by the way, Jay Bruce is not a first baseman. He's an outfielder. Uh, Yeah. But that would be the Mets. Again, we'll see. Hopefully, they hire an actual general manager, president of baseball operations, whatever you want to say. They get a competent front office in here. Although, it sounds like they won't. 
because there was an article earlier in the, in, in the post this week chronicling, of course, some, 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 some uh, discord between the old man and the son, Freddie and Jeff, okay? Fred wants a more traditional baseball person. Jeff wants an analytics guy. And they say Fred's obsessed with the Yankees, but that he doesn't understand anything that the Yankees do because the Yankees actually employ a large bastion of analytics people. But see, I think the Yankees do it smartly. They use analytics, but they also use traditional methods, which is um, actually pay attention to what's going on in the field, and you don't make decisions in a vacuum based solely on statistics and analytics. Um, so, so already, the, my hopes for the Mets doing the right thing and getting somebody smart in here uh, are low. You know, Joel Sherman wrote the article. Joel Sherman was the other one who, who wrote about, you know, he, suge- he recommended some guy from Major League Baseball from the commissioner's office or from the, you know, from the league office who's some, you know, some, some, some guru. And Joel Sherman, remember, the, the, the thing he had said before, what the Mets needed when they hired Sandy Alderson was gravitas. Well, how'd that work out? Sandy, Sandy Alderson's term here was in, in just as much of an embarrassment as Omar Minaya's. A little bit of success. Right? And 15, just like the 06 team. 15, except they made it one step further, made it to the World Series. Other than that, it was an embarrassment, just like it was under Omar Minaya. Now, you didn't have Sandy Olsen accusing another, a, a reporter of, of wanting a front office job. But other than that, pretty much everything else. All the dopiness with playing a man short all the time. All the idiocy around ha- handling injuries, misdiagnosing injuries. All that crap continued under Alderson. That, that happened under Minaya. All of it. So, again, listen, I, I, you know, I say this all the time. It's not like a broken record. The hardest thing to overcome in sports is bad ownership. And the Mets have it in spades, unfortunately. I mean, even a press conference with David Wright the other day. There's, there's, there's Jeff Wilpon on one side and this John Ricco on the other. By the way, could somebody tell John Ricco... <laughs> He's not in eighth grade anymore. I mean, can you wear a shirt that fits? Can you get a haircut that doesn't make you look like you're in eighth grade? I mean, I'm sure he's a nice guy and all. I know he's been a loyal Mets employee. But, jeez, he, he is not well-suited to be in the public eye, shall we say, or the, the, the public, the face of a franchise from a front office perspective. Um, you know. I guess they run him out there because I guess, you know, we know all about Omar and, and his, uh, shall we say, syntax issues. <laughs> and, you know, maybe J.P. Ricciardi's thick Boston accent is too much for some New Yorkers to take. I don't know. Uh, more, more, more likely, it's Rico's been here the longest, and so he gets to get to be kind of the face of this idiotic three-headed monster that the Mets ownership thought was a good idea to replace Sandy Alderson. But there they are. And a reporter asks, you know, a, a legitimate question to Jeff Wilpon about the, the prospect of retiring David Wright's number. And he couldn't even give a straight answer around that. I, you know, and he deferred to Jay Horowitz, who's now, he's not going to be the head of the Mets PR anymore. I guess they're giving him some sort of ceremonial position on the Mets alumni board or something. I, I mean, again, it, it, this organization, they will drive you crazy. I mean, just say, yeah. 
We're not going to necessarily retire tomorrow, but yes, I, I, I would imagine that at some point down the road, his number will be retired. He gave some mealy mouth dancer, hemmed and hawed. And, I mean, it's just so ridiculous. They're so hard to take. They really are. Meanwhile, after last night's game, Syndergaard's 12-3 and on a team that's nine games under 500, and he hasn't even pitched that well. I mean, he pitched well last night, seven shutout innings, two starts ago. He had a complete game, one unearned run against the Giants. The start in between, he was rolling against the Phillies, and then he kind of, you know, sort of lost it. Callaway left him in too long. He got hit with a line drive. They left him in, whatever. It still won the game. The Mets actually scored a bunch of runs that game. But, I mean, listen, Wheeler has been one of the best pitchers in baseball for three months now, since June. We all know about DeGrom. DeGrom, 26, by the way, he's 8 and 9 with a 170 RA. 26 straight starts that are allowing three earned runs or less. Jacob DeGrom. He's going to win it unless he gets battered by the Red Sox on Sunday. He's winning the Cy Young. Max Scherzer, who has 17 wins, lost last night. He's 17 and 7. ZRA went up to two and a half. That's really good. The way these, you know, the, the, the way people look at analytics these days, that ain't getting it done. And Aaron Nola, same thing. Now, I like wins. I agree. I think wins are important to a starting pitcher, but there are extreme examples. And this case of Jacob DeGrom, not saying this just because I'm a Mets fan, but this is an extreme example. I mean, any other halfway competent team, right, and he's got 15 wins. Easy. Easy. I mean, think about that. 26 straight starts, three earned runs or less. It's almost impossible to not have a winning record. Unless you pitch for the Mets, of course. And by the way, speaking of which, the Mets totally have the look of a team right now. Part of it's been whom they've played. But they totally have the look of a team now that, can, that is completely relaxed because they know none of these games really mean anything. And boy, they're playing great now. Except when DeGrom pitches because then they know something's on the line because they know they're trying to get in the Cy Young. And then they completely tense up and revert right back to form. And they score no runs for the guy. They play crappy defense. Callaway makes idiotic decisions. He brings in bullpen guys that can't get anybody out, just like the other day. They idiotically pushed his start last Sunday because it was raining. Although, once the game started, you knew that they were playing that game. And then they pushed him back to Monday when everybody knew the game was going to get rained out on Monday. So then he pitched Tuesday. So, of course, on Sunday, the Mets finally scored some runs, but DeGrom didn't get the benefit of that because the Mets moronically decided to, to scratch him from that start. And they gave some idiotic, they were worried about maybe him getting started and they're not pitching. I mean, you know, again, they they can't even execute the simplest of things. It's just so frustrating. So there have been some bright spots. Rosario has played much better. I mean, he's at least given you some hope now. You know, after the first three months of the season where there was really no reason to think that this guy could be part of your future, at least now, you know, he's up to about 255 batting average, 260, hit his ninth home run yesterday. He's stolen about, I think he's got 15, 16 steals. Defense has improved. Now, look, his on-base percentage is stolen to 300. That's terrible. That's got to improve. You know, he's got, I think, what, eight triples? I mean, he's shown signs. He has shown signs that the, the talent is there. So that's encouraging. McNeil, I mentioned him earlier. He's been an enormous bright spot. Conforto, 
Another one who I was not interested in his second half meaningless window dressing numbers, but he's still young enough that it, it, it's nice to see him having a very good second half now. He's up to 25 home runs, close to 70 RBIs. He's been raging hot lately. Um, now, look, 238 batting average, unacceptable. That's got to that's improve. But he's certainly shown signs. You know, talked about the starting pitching. Seth Lugo's been pretty good in the bullpen. Gesellman, still don't think he's your closer, but certainly a, 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 should be a useful arm in that bullpen as a setup guy. So there have been some encouraging signs. If you're trying to look for some positives heading into next year. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with the rest of MLB and the playoff picture right after this. Okay, we're back here on a football Saturday, although we just spent about 20 minutes talking about baseball and the Mets in particular. See, it's funny how that happens. Uh, we'll just do a quick shot around. Uh, we'll play a little pepper, go around Major League Baseball. So we talked about the Red Sox. They've all but sewn up the division. They've clinched the playoff berth. Uh, Yankees back on the beam, 91-56, and 56, you know, beating up on some bad teams. Uh, the Blue Jays in particular, they won 11-0 last night. The biggest takeaway from that is, is Tanaka has pitched very well lately, and right now, uh, if the playoff game was tomorrow and he was available, he's got to be your starter. That's it. Severino has not had a good second half. Uh, his last start was okay, not great. Uh, I'd say right now your, your, your choices would be J-Hap or Tanaka. And so obviously some of it will depend on if the Yankees can align their rotation. You know, But right now the A's are charging hard. I mean, the A's are only a game and a half back of the Yankees for the first playoff spot. First, sorry, first wild card spot. Um, so, you know, the Yankees got to grind here with how many games left? Let's see. The Yankees are 91 and 56. That's nine and five, 147. So 15 games left. And the A's are 90 and 58. So they've got 13 games left. Um, you know, the Yankees are going to play the Red Sox here, six games. The Red Sox have nothing to play for, really. Now, maybe the Red Sox want to stick it to the Yankees. Wouldn't be surprised. And make them become the second wild card. I mean, the Red Sox right now, look, I know they've had a great year. That lineup is great. Uh, David Price has had a resurgent year. He's been tremendous, especially in the second half. Porcello's pretty good. He's not great. Talked about him. Sale's been on the DL twice. He's going to pitch against the Mets on Sunday. They're only going to throw him for three innings. But, you know, his, his postseason uh, track record is not great. But you would think, you know, the strength of the Red Sox staff is their starting pitching. Their bullpen is is a bit of a mess. I mean, they're basically opening, they're they're basically holding open tryouts right now in these games to see who, and in that bullpen can be depended on in the playoffs. Because other than Kimbrel, who's still really good, although he's not the dominant lights out guy he used to be, but he's still better than most. Um, the rest of that bullpen is shaky. I mean, Joe Kelly's been up and down all year. The Thornburgs, I mean, he pitched last night. He got blasted by the Mets. He's been bad for a couple of weeks. Barnes is hurt. You know, they, they, they've got issues. They've got issues in that bullpen. You know, they put Drew Pomeranz, who's been a ma- major disappointment as a starter, the lefty. They put him in the bullpen. They're hoping maybe he can help him out, in, you know, in the bullpen. You, need, you could use all the lefty arms you can. Uh, they've got issues. As do the Indians, by the way. I mean, the Indians certainly have the look of a team that just wants the season to be over. I mean, I can't say I blame them. 
I mean, they, you know, they've known they're going to win that division for pretty much two months now. I mean, the Indians are 82 and 65. Not bad, not great. And then you look at the fact that the Blue Jays are 80 and 66. I mean, they're they, they're a game behind. Not the Blue Jays. The the Tampa Rays are 80 and 66. By the way, they're. It, Tampa Bay Rays are 14 games under five over 500. With you know, look, uh, Snell at what is he 18 and five now? I mean, there you go. It's a big difference. But the re- they basically have one starting pitcher, and then they they, they pitch an, a relief pitcher the first inning or two innings of every game, and somehow they're 14 games over 500. The Mets have three of the best pitchers in baseball in Syndergaard, Degrom, and Wheeler, and they're nine games under. And it's not like the blue uh, the, the the Rays have this tremendous lineup either, by the way. Anyway, uh, and then you know the Astros are are, are ninety two and fifty five, three game lead in the loss column over the A's. So that division race isn't even totally uh, wrapped up yet either. And then in the National League, Braves are winning the NL East. That's all there is to it. The Phillies, as I've been saying all year, have finally played like they're their talent level. They're four games over 500. They've been in free fall for a while now. Thankfully, the Mets contributed to that too, actually. Um, so they're seven and a half games back with, what, 15 to go? Uh, I, I mean, look, I know the Mets blew that lead, but I don't see the Braves blowing that lead. Nationals could never get it going. I mean, that, that, is, that is one puzzling team. With some of the talent they have on that team, we've said it all year, for them to only be a 500 team is a massive disappointment. And then in the NL Central, the Brewers, who I kind of left for dead, I have to say, a couple of weeks ago, have come roaring back. They're 8-2 and two in their last 10. Uh, the bullpen has rebounded. Hayter's been great. Jeffers has been great. Soria's been pretty good. Knebel, I mean, they've got a good, deep bullpen. The starting staff still isn't very good. But, boy, that lineup is good. We talked about it all year. Uh, Christian Yelich has firmly put himself into the MVP discussions, a.k.a. Pete Davidson. Uh, he, he's had a tremendous year. Glad the Mets had no interest in him. And uh, they are two games back of the Cubs. And right now would be the first wild card team. And then you go out to the NL West where, I mean, it's anybody's right now. You've got the Rockies at 81-66, and 66, Dodgers at 81-67. Dodgers have won three in a row, and the Diamondbacks are still alive at seventy-eight and seventy. So if the season ended today, and then you've got oh sorry, and then you also got the Cardinals at eighty-one and sixty-seven. So if the season were to end today, Cubs win the division, Rockies win the division, Braves win the division, Brewers are your first wild card, and then the Dodgers and and the Cardinals are both eighty-one and sixty-seven. They'd be the second wild card. I don't know what the tiebreak situation would be there, but needless to say. Cubs, Brewers, Rockies, Dodgers, and even the Diamondbacks. Five teams vying for one, two, three. Oh, and throw the Brewers in there. So six teams vying for, for one, two, three, four playoff spots, basically, with two weeks to go. So that's certainly interesting. You know, the Mariners have fallen off the cliff. They've been, you know, they've had a bad second half. I mean, look, they're still 15 games over 500, but they are, uh, you know, 11 games back. You know, division's out of reach, and the wild card's out of reach as well. 
So, I mean, the Yankees are, the Yankees are either going to be the first wild card or the second wild card, and the A's could win the division and or be the first wild card or the second wild card. The same goes for the Astros. So, there you go. That's your picture in Major League Baseball. All right. Another short break, and then we're back with the NFL right after this. And we are back here on a Football Friday Saturday edition of Jamal About Sports, taking us out from the break, a little overkill by men at work. All righty. So week one in the NFL in the books, and we start with the Detroit Lions and that hideous, pathetic, embarrassing performance on Monday Night Football against the New York Jets. Uh, I've been sounding the alarm bells all summer. You've heard me say it if you listen to any of my previous shows. Everyone in Lions land had the Lions winning the game against the Jets easily. I didn't see it. Part of it is 40 years of history. Part of it is just watching with my eyes. And I understand, again, you could tell me, oh, it's only preseason. Well, we saw how bad they looked in preseason. And yes, granted, normally you don't put a ton of stock into that. But the problem is, is that the starters looked bad in preseason, right? And, you know, you don't care about results and records in preseason, but you look for certain things in preseason to give you an inclination and an idea. How do the starters, when they play, how do they look? How do guys that you're counting on to make, say, big jumps from year one to year two, like Jared Davis, for instance, how do they look? How does the offensive line look? Because it was really bad last year. Right? Despite Bob Quinn putting all these resources into the offensive line, it was an atrocity last year. And it was an atrocity in the preseason. Well, all those things reared their ugly head. Jared Davis is fast on his way to being an enormous bust. You wouldn't even known he was on the field against the Jets. We'll get to Darnold and all that stuff in a second. And I understand Matt Safford had one of the worst games of his career. I get that. But the main theme here and the big issue that I have, forget about Patricia for a second, right? It's one game. However, the general manager, Bob Quinn, the savior from the Patriots, okay, he's had three drafts since he's been here. His first draft has yielded exactly two starters. Two, not very good. Taylor Decker, who, by the way, we still don't know if he's any good. You know what I know about Taylor Decker? I know he hit his own quarterback harder than he hit anybody that were lined up across him on Monday night. I know that when he kicked Matthew Stafford in the knee as he was getting trucked back into the backfield like he likes to all the time. Still don't know if he's any good. Look, he played fairly well his rookie year. He had some, some games where he looked bad, one in particular against the Packers. Okay. But you could that's somewhat to be expected. I get it. Rookie year. Finished the year strong. Looked at least like there was something to work with there. But this is a left tackle. This isn't a guard. This isn't a safety. It's not a tight end. This is a left tackle. This is a premium position in the NFL. 
If you're going to be a first-round pick and a left tackle, you need to be an above-average, at least an above-average starter. At least. Now, I understand he was hurt for the first half of last year. When he came back, he pulled like garbage. And he looked crappy in the preseason, and he looked horrendous again on Monday night. That's one starter from, from, from Quinn's first trap. The other one is Graham Glasgow, the center, who, again, we don't know if he's any good yet. I know he played every game last year for the Lions. That's good. He also played every game on one of the worst offensive lines in football. So we don't know if he's any good. He didn't look great Monday night either. Now I understand nobody looked good Monday night, really save for maybe Kenny Galladay and Devin Kennard. And the three times they got Carrion Johnson the ball. But other than that, no one looked good. I get it. But my point is that to only yield two starters from a draft and to neither of them still know in year three whether they're any good, let alone really good, is a major problem. Because the second round pick from the Quinn's first draft, Ashawn Robinson, wasn't even active on Monday night on a team that has zero talent on the defensive line due to Bob Quinn, by the way. Other than Ziggy Ansah, who is not a Bob Quinn pick, that defensive line stinks. Stinks. There's not one guy on that defensive line another team would take and make a starter. Not one. Sylvester Williams is on his third team in two years. Ricky Jean Francois, the epitome of just the guy. Kerry Hyder, nice little story, nothing more than a rotational guy. Deshaun Hand, rookie fourth-round pick. Who knows? Ashawn Robinson was a healthy scratch Monday night. That's a major issue. Miles Killebrew is a fourth-round pick from that draft. Lions are trying to convert him into linebacker. He was a safety. He's a special teams guy only right now. Not good. Joe Dahl, fifth-round pick, stinks. The only reason he's on the team is because he was a draft pick. Horrible, horrible player. Left tackle in college lines, tried to move him to guard. He's been awful. Got rid of Anthony Zettel for some reason. I guess he's not a good scheme fit for Matt Patricia. And we'll get to all this nonsense, this scheme horse shit in a second. But Anthony Zettel at least was productive. He had six and a half sacks last year. Now, I understand he's not great, but at least he's, he's decent. He helped the Lions win a couple games last year. He had a big sack of Case Keenum on the, in the road win against the Vikings last year. Guy hustles his ass off, shows up, plays hard. You would think that would be a Patriots kind of guy, a Patricia kind of guy, a Bob Quinn kind of guy. Nope. No use for him somehow. Brown signed him gladly. By the way, a Browns team that has way more talent on defense than the Lions do, particularly on the defensive line. I mean, Miles Garrett and Emmanuel Agba are head and shoulders above anybody the Lions have on defense. So that first draft is a disaster. Now you go to last year's draft. Now, again, I understand, you know, you want to be somewhat patient. Before, you know, what, what, when you're making judgments about drafts. But let me just go back, okay? Lines first draft. Now, again, this is year three. This is the year 
where you're supposed to be able to fairly judge these guys and see what kind of draft it was. Taylor Decker just talked about. Sean Robinson, Graham Glasgow, Miles Killebrew. Joe Dahl was the fifth-round pick. Antoine Williams, another fifth-round pick. Off the team, I think, out of the league. Jake Rudock, sixth-round pick. Lions cut him for Matt Patricia's, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if he's his tennis Well, he's certainly not his tennis buddy. But Matt Patricia looks like he, he doesn't get an ounce of physical activity in ever. Um, but his buddy from the, the Patriots, they kept Matt Castle over Jake Rudock. And then Anthony Zettel was the other sixth-round pick, who the Lions just cut. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight picks – one, two, three, four, five are still on the team, but only two of which are starters. And again, we don't know if they're any good. That's not good. And then you go to last year's draft, okay? Jared Davis, first round pick, led the show, you know, led this segment off talking about him. He's awful. He's absolutely awful. He struggled big time last year, couldn't guard anybody. I mean, can't cover anyone in the passing game. Right to the point where the Lions had to bench him about midway through when they finally realized he can't cover. Now, he shows up in the run game from time to time. When he sees a play and reads it quickly and just fires and goes downhill, he can make plays. But by the way, he doesn't make them all the time because half the time he goes in out of control. Just like he did Monday night, he came free on a blitz and was completely out of control with his head down and Darnold easily sidestepped him. So he misses a lot of tackles he should make because he is completely out of control. So, and he, you wouldn't have even known he was on the field against the Jets. Nowhere to be seen. Tease Tabor, second round pick, corner out of Florida. Slowest corner in the history of the NFL, perhaps. But no, Bob Quinn knew that it didn't matter. Except he can't even start now over Nevin Lawson, who I like more than most but is not a starting quality level corner in the NFL. Nevin Lawson's good depth, probably better suited to play the nickel. Right? Again, I've talked about him a million times. Plays, plays hard, competes. Every down gives you everything he has. He's scrappy. He still has no interceptions in his career. He's short at 5'9". He doesn't have good ball skills. And he gets called for a lot of penalties because he panics when the ball's in the air. So the fact that Tease Tabor can't beat him out is a major red flag. Right now we're looking like we got 0 for 2. Jalen Reeves Mabin. So, sorry, Kenny Galladay, third round pick. Now, Kenny Galladay looks like he could be a stud. But remember, had Bob Quinn stood pat, right, with no real clear-cut number one running back on the roster, could have just sat there and taken Kareem Hunt. But he decided in his infinite wisdom, no, the Lions don't need a running back. So he traded down, got an extra fourth-round pick, took Galladay, who, again, looks like he's going to be a good player and perhaps an impact player. Then he took Jalen Reeves-Mabin, a small, undersized, injured linebacker from Tennessee who's done nothing so far. And then he took Michael Roberts, who I have to admit— I heard an old podcast I did with AG when we talked about the Senior Bowl and the East-West Shrine game, a show from we did in January 2017, and one of the guys I raved about was Michael Roberts, and I wanted the Lions to take him in the fourth round, and they did. Well, so far, he's provided absolutely nothing. Didn't play a lot last year because of Ebron. Only had four catches. They never threw to him. This was supposed to be the year he was going to step forward and make a big leap. He had a lousy preseason, 
lousy training camp, and he did. You wouldn't even know he was on the field against the Jets. So that's looking like a major bust. Then some guy named Jeremiah Ledbetter, not on the team anymore. Um, who else am I missing from that draft? Let's see. Ledbetter was a sixth-round pick. Oh, Jamal Agnew, fifth-round pick. Looks like probably right now, the, he and Galladay look like the best picks of that draft. Jamal Agnew, great year last year as a punt returner. Looks like he can actually give you something uh, on defense as a nickel corner as well. Um, So that was last year's draft. So right now, you've got no starters. Well, sorry, no above-average starters. One starter in Jared Davis, who's not any good. Uh, And a bunch of backups. You know, Galladay... I guess you could claim he's kind of a starter when lines run three receiver sets. Okay. And again, I understand it's the sec it's one game into their second year. But based on what I saw in the from the rookie year from Jared Davis and what I saw in the preseason from him where he missed tackle after tackle and he gets easily swallowed up by blocks and he can't cover anybody, it's not encouraging. I mean, look, you could have any. You could run any scheme you want. You don't have a middle linebacker. You don't have a defense. It's that simple. And the fact that Bob Quinn thought this guy was going to be the linchpin of that defense is troubling. Just like Bob Quinn knew Larry Warford and Riley Reef weren't any good, except the offensive line has been way worse since those guys left. Way worse. Oh, and shocker of shockers, T.J. Lang's hurt again this week. He's not going to play. Big surprise. So now some guy named Kerry Wiggins is going to start who was the worst rated pass blocker of any guard last year according to Pro Football Focus. So let's make sure we got a quarterback killed again. I mean, why would you sign a guy when, when, I mean, it's not like there wasn't a lot of tape. He started for the Chargers last year, but he was one of the lowest rated guards in the NFL. Why would you sign that guy? Because, because Jeff Davidson, the new offensive line coach, knows him? That's all well and good. How about, if, how about a guy who can play? So this is a very, from what, I can, from what I can see, not a very good roster. Bob Quinn has done a very poor job. And forget about the free agent moves. I mean, he doesn't make any. They don't spend money, any real money. They made no effort to get Khalil Mack from a team that's now, he'll be terrorizing them twice a year in their own division. Right? He signs these mediocre, mid-level scrubs like Ricky Jean Francois and Sly Williams because that's what they like to do in the Patriot world, I guess. They spend big money, obviously, at the quarterback, maybe cornerback. And, you know, Quinn did give Darius Slay an extension. He just gave Quandre Diggs an extension. Looked like a smart move, particularly after the first play of the game against the Jets. But, no, Quandre Diggs is a good player. By the way, Here's the other thing. All the, good, all the best players on the Lions, Darius Slay, Ziggy Ansah, when he ever plays, which is hardly ever. He's hurt again for a change, although he's going to try to give it a go on Sunday. Quandre Diggs, Stafford, obviously, Golden Tate. All these guys, Glover Quinn, although unfortunately poor Glover looks like he's shot now at age 32. I mean, he looks so bad and slow on that long touchdown run by Isaiah Crowell. It was embarrassing. 
felt bad for him. Um, all the best players on the lines are all guys from the Mayhew era. All of them. All of them. There's nobody that Quinn... Marvin Jones, the one guy Quinn's brought in that's, that's, that's an above-average starter. One. One in three years. One. That's the major issue. It's not a very talented roster. And it's gotten worse. I mean, Lions fans, the days of the Indomitian Sioux, Cliff Averill, Vianden Bosch, Fairley, Turk McBride, Lawrence Jackson... And then later even with Ziggy. Those days are long gone. This defensive line is garbage. Straight up trash. The linebackers are straight up trash. Good secondary. Guess what? A good secondary is useless if your front seven is as bad as the Lions is. And... All these weapons, supposedly, at Stafford's disposal are also rendered meaningless when your offensive line is as bad as the Lions is. And if I have to watch this fat, over-the-hill, tippy-toed LeGarrette Blount one more time, I'm sorry, Lions fans. I called the move lazy and uninspired when the Lions made it. I got killed on Twitter for it. I'm not a fraud. I couldn't stand LeGarrette Blount when he played for the Patriots. I haven't stand, couldn't stand him his whole career. Never thought he was really much any good. He's had two years over 1,000 yards rushing. That's it. Is he a competent short yardage and goal back? Yes. Should he ever be in a formation on first down? No. Especially when you trade it up in the second round for on Johnson. You mean the same one Garrett Blount who quit on the Steelers because they didn't like his situation there so he could go running back to the Patriots? That guy? And that guy's supposed to be a leader on your team? By the way, prediction. He will talk his way or act his way off this Lions roster within about five weeks and, and go running back to the Patriots. Watch. And of course, do something to help them win a game, but watch. So here's the other thing. Told you a couple of signs. When Patricia and Quinn were shown high-fiving each other in the draft this year over drafting Tracy Walker, who, you might ask? Exactly. A safety from Louisiana Lafayette in the third round when everyone in the world had a fifth-round grade on him and when safety was the farthest position of need for the Lions, and then they're whooping it up like they just won the Super Bowl. That's all I needed to see. These are two guys that don't get it. They think they're smarter than everybody else. The fact that Harrison Phillips from Stanford was just the defensive lineman was sitting there, and the Lions ignored it when they had no defensive line to speak of. Where was a pass rusher? You draft Frank Ragnow. In the first round to play left guard, even though he was a center and a right guard in college. Oh, by the way, he also stunk on Monday night. Let the great Harry Anderson magically get behind him (laughs) on the play where Stafford threw the pick six. By the way, I've been watching Lions games every game forever now. 
I mean, I could tell that the Lions were going to run that play to Theo Riddick there. If I could tell you, damn sure well know that the Jets knew, as they said. And, of course, the Lions dismissed it, right? Rather than just saying, hey, you know what? That's something we should look at then. No, 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 no. That's no big deal. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, we're already in for it there. I mean, I understand that's most coaches are in the NFL are like that, right? Their, their, their outward personas are insufferable. I get that. You know, they never give you anything. They're never honest about anything. Very few in the league that are. But, you know, you just got your ass handed to you by the Jets at home on Monday night. You gave up 48 points. Now, I understand, you know, special teams touchdown. By the way, that was always at least a stalwart under Caldwell with special teams. It was a disaster. And this Sam Martin, you know my feelings on him. You cannot get this guy off the team fast enough for me. He gave up a 78 punt return to Andre Roberts, about as pedestrian a punt returner as there is. But then the other thing that I've been reading this week is Patricia is implementing or wants to implement the dreaded culture change. Well, that's all I needed to hear. Because I'll tell you, look, Jim Caldwell had many faults, okay? His game day, in-game decisions were questionable at best in a lot of ways, right? I always complained that he was too conservative, took the ball out of his best player's hands, a quarterback, way too many times when trying to salt games away, okay? The, 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 the debacle with the Hail Mary against Aaron Rodgers, where they didn't have the right defense called and didn't have the right personnel on the field, Right? They had a game last year where they had nine men on the field. They had a game last year where they had ten men on the field, both on defense. Okay, There were issues. Clock management issues. I get it. But the one thing you can say about Caldwell is the culture here was just fine with Jim Caldwell. That team played hard. They didn't always play smart, but they played hard for him all the time. That team never gave up. A lot of the dumb penalties that we saw during the Schwartz era got cleaned up. They handled their business. They were professional. The culture did not need changing. There was one thing from the Caldwell era. Caldwell, at least, they, they, were, they became at least a measured, respectable team under Caldwell. You could talk about scheme and play calling, all those things. That's fine. All, all certainly, all fair criticisms of Jim Caldwell. The one thing, again, that wasn't broken was the culture. Except now Matt Patricia is going to put his stamp on things, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, here's an idea, Matty P. How about you show up to the game looking like a grown-up? Not like a fat, disheveled schlub with your stupid hat on backwards and your affectation with your cool lumberjack beard and your pencil behind your ear. Win a fucking game first! I mean, are you kidding me? This guy's more concerned about how he looks on the sidelines by looking, by not looking good. That's his shtick. I don't want to look like I care, but of course he cares. You know, you can get away with that garbage like Belichick does with the hoodie and the, and the, the sweatshirt with the sleeves cut off. Yeah, you can get away with that nonsense after you've won a bunch. How about you wear a normal shirt, tuck it in, if you're going to wear a hat, wear it the right way. I mean, I don't want to sound like Buck Showalter here, but please, you're the head coach of an NFL team. 
This isn't Ken Griffey Jr. wearing his hat on backwards in batting practice. You're on, you're on national television. So, listen. I said this a while ago, and I'm sticking by it. Um, it's going to get ugly real quick here in Detroit. Real quick. Because, again, you've got two arrogant, smug people running the team in Patricia and Bob Quinn who think they're smarter than everybody else. They will admit to nothing. They will admit no wrongs, no mistakes. They will close ranks, right? And the media starts to press even more and more. It's going to get testier and testier and uglier and uglier. You're going to see good players on the lines that like the way Caldwell ran things. He treated them like gentlemen. You know, I mean, apparently... Patricia took out the ping pong table from the team room. I mean, are you kidding me? That, that, that reminds me of when Randy Edsel got the Maryland job. Here's another one, by the way, that was going to take the team from good to great, right? And he made all the players, they couldn't wear baseball hats in, 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 the, in, the, meet, in, the, in the football building, and they couldn't have earrings and all this other nonsense, no, all, all this crap that has nothing to do with winning games, right? You're treating men like children, and so, oh, Matt Patricia's going to take the ping pong table out. Because that's why the Lions didn't win a Super Bowl. It's because they had a ping pong table in their team room. What a dope. So watch. You're going to see guys probably like Glover Quinn one out. Stafford, I'm sure, is going to get fed up with this crap real quick. But, you know, look, he's the best team guy ever. And he took that whole loss on his shoulders and said, look, this one's on me. Hopefully I'll never have to say that again. I'll take this one. Hopefully, I mean, that's, that's what you want out of your quarterback. That's why that's my guy. I know he's not Rodgers. I know he's not Brady. I don't care. That's my guy. I'm sticking with him through thick and thin. I understand he had a horrible first game. He also, his offensive coordinator does nothing to help him out. That offensive line is trash. I mean, often, could, could these guys, do you have a shred of pride? Aren't you tired of getting knocked back on your ass and getting your quarterback killed every game? I mean, they get no push in the run game at all. Very little pass protection. Stafford's running for his life on almost every other play. I mean, look, I get it. It was a horrible performance from front to back other than the first play of the game, the pick six by Condre Dix. I understand that. And you, hopefully you're never as bad as you look when you lose or as good as you look when you win. I understand that old axiom as well. But to lose like that, all three phases, I mean, non-competitive, special teams, awful, defense, awful, offense, awful, awful. Now, the game was 17-17 in the beginning of the third quarter, which when, oh, surprise, surprise, the line's down 17-10 at half. what they do to start the third quarter? Five straight passes, right down the field, touchdown. And then, of course, the defense let the Jets come right down the field. And again, let might be a strong word. They don't have any players. That's a bad defense. I mean, once Ansah went out of the game, that was it. He's the only guy who could get to the quarterback. I know Devin Kennard had a sack. Okay, it was a cleanup sack after his Ansah uh, flushed Darnold from the pocket. Um, 
They're not getting anything from Sly Williams, Ricky Jean Francois. I mean, these guys aren't any good. So, look, it's going to be a long, ugly year. I mean, listen, the bottom line is, I'm sure Bob Quinn reads a lot of business books, right? Because that's a new thing now in sports. Everybody likes to read business books and then translate it to sports. Even though in a lot of ways the two have, I mean, in some ways they're similar, but in a lot of ways they have nothing to do with each other. Because guess what? I understand they're professionals and they get paid money. Still supposed to be fun. Okay? And it's still about people. And connecting with people. And getting people to drive towards a common goal. And when you're pulling stupid stunts like taking out ping pong tables. I mean, look. He wants to run these guys into the ground. That's his prerogative. That's fine. Caldwell didn't do it that way. They, they maxed out at 9-7. and seven. All right. Listen, you got to let the coach do what he wants when it comes to strategy and running a practice and all that stuff. I understand that. But again, this idea that there was some, some lazy culture here that, that Caldwell uh, fostered is, is, is frankly false. And I mean, you want to get, uh, you want to, you want the surefire way to get pro athletes to not buy into what you're doing is pull petty, stupid garbage like that. Like pulling the t- ping pong table out of the team room. That's like Marty Mordenweg getting on his stupid Harley and driving off after the bar was high, according to him and Matt Millen. I mean, this smacks of the Matt Millen, Marty Mordenweg era, doesn't it? Lions came off a 9-7 year after they blew that game at home to the Bears. When Paul Edinger, I think, made a 54-yard field goal to knock him out of the playoffs on Christmas Eve day. That was the year Bobby Ross resigned mid-year because he got wind that Bill Bill Ford Jr. was in talks with Matt Millen to come take over the team. And then he hired that dope Marty Mornenweg. And after like the second practice, he pulled some stupid stunt and every player on the team rolled their eyes and knew it was about as disingenuous as possible. It was A-Rodian in its... its, (laughs) its, phoniness I mean that's what this smacks of to me and look am I overreacting possibly I'm sorry sorry for you younger line fans out there I've been watching this crap for 40 years every 4 or 5 years or so the new savior is supposed to come to town And everything's going to change. Nothing changes. Look, I'll admit, I'm still scarred by the fact Jim Schwartz didn't work out. And I will go to my grave saying that that's the unluckiest son of a bitch to ever be a head coach for the Lions. I mean, I've, I've chronicled the stuff ad nauseum here. The Calvin game against, you know, Calvin Johnson non catch against the Bears. The four-set run, the robbery up in Green Bay in 2011. I mean, there, there's a million, you know, the Saints playoff game even. They screwed us in that game. Uh, there's a million things. By the way, how's Jimmy Schwartz doing now? He's got a Super Bowl ring, doesn't he? Now, how's this sad sack organization done since he left? One playoff game, got screwed by, against, in the game against the Cowboys, admittedly so. But other than that, nothing. 
and then a complete and utter embarrassment on Monday night against the Jets. By the way, give the Jets credit. Their coaching staff was prepared. They knew what the Lions were going to do. Darnold certainly, after the first play, settled down. Looked pretty good. But, again, not to be that guy, Jets fans. Uh, the Lions defense is lousy. So, uh, that was a perfect mark. I mean, you couldn't have picked, you couldn't have handpicked a better team for his first game to be against than the Lions' crap defense. All right, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back Monday to break down week two of the NFL. As always, you can catch us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Facebook page, Jamal About Sports, website, jamalaboutsports.com. Check me out on Twitter at jamalaboutsportnos. Enjoy all the football this weekend. We'll be back on Monday with another show. Until then, peace out and thanks for listening.